The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Tuesday edition of PFTPM. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome in. There's a lot going on for a Tuesday. Shereen Williams here to help me get through everything. We're going to do a Titan Steelers rewatch. And also, we will have the Week 7 Awards. MDS will be joining us later in the program. Shereen, good afternoon. How are you? I'm good, Mike. For a Tuesday, doing very good. Now, I've been busy for the last hour, but as best I can tell, you had some sort of a technical issue fire drill that has gotten resolved. <laughs> <laughs> and I may have just jinxed it by saying that. Yeah, we're, we're hoping, Mike. So, yeah, well, hopefully all the technical glitches that we've had over the last couple of weeks, usually when our producer Erin was here, she is our jinx, I think, uh, are all out of the system and we're good to go. All right, well, let's find out. Let's put it to the test right now, and we're going to get right to it because your Dallas Cowboys in the news attempting to unload veteran pass rusher Everson Griffin. And they have, according to NFL media. Griffin goes to the Lions for a conditional sixth-round pick. Doesn't seem like much, but the Cowboys unload the balance of his salary. There's a combination of salary and significant per-game roster bonuses for Everson Griffin. That now becomes the obligation of the Lions, who are 3-3, three and three, very much alive in the NFC, especially with seven teams. Oh, and by the way, once he gets through the COVID protocols, he surely won't be able to play this weekend. Game one for... Everson Griffin, he goes back to Minnesota as a member of the Detroit Lions. So makes for an interesting couple of weeks. And Griffin, who had two and a half sacks so far this year for the Cowboys, has a chance to make a difference for a Lions team that is surprisingly contending. Mike, I just can't wrap my head around this and really figure out what the Cowboys are doing. I mean, they didn't get much for Everson Griffin. He was second on the team in sacks with two and a half, had one on Sunday, and Played significant snaps, played for 34 snaps on Sunday against Washington and actually probably his his best game, but maybe they were showcasing him to trade him. I know Randy Gregory's coming back, but can you count on Randy Gregory? He played six snaps, I think, the other day, but can you count on him when you haven't been able to count on him his entire career and you haven't seen him play in more than a year? I, I just, I, I'm really having difficulty figuring out what the Cowboys are doing, but it almost reads like they've realized that this year is going to be a write-off. They're not going to get it done. Let's get all the cap space we can possibly get to carry over for next year when we can try to rebuild this defense, which is going to be the main uh, thing they're going to try to do, obviously outside of signing Dak Prescott to a long-term deal. Or I'm not ready to say it's a full-blown fire sale, but to the extent you can go player by player, if you can identify a guy that you think you can do without, that you can think doesn't fit, that you can think for whatever reason is not a guy that is going to contribute significantly to what it is they're trying to do, and they're still trying to win the NFC East. They're only a half game behind the Eagles with Philadelphia coming up on Sunday night. If Griffin Griffin is a guy they've identified as someone they don't need, yeah, there's a way to get a little something – from a contender, a better contender than the Cowboys, and 
avoid that $3 million, $6 million actually in total potential cap space that would have been tied up this year, bump it over to next year. And that's the thing. Under the current CBA, and it's been this way for about a decade now, you can automatically carry over any and all cap space you want. You don't have to have any tricks. You don't have to have any special language in contracts. It just carries over. And they're going to need to carry over as much as they can. So I don't look at it as folding tents. I look at, look at it as this is a guy we can do without. And we'd rather have the $6 million next year than him for the rest of this year. I don't think this is the beginning of a sell-off. I just think this is an example of one guy, and it may only be one guy, that they've decided they can do without and they'd rather have the cap space next year. Yeah, I'm not sure it's, it's a fire sale, Mike, but, uh, but I do think they'll listen to offers to any and all players that they have on their roster just to try to get, A, that cap space, and B, whatever draft picks they can get. I, I do think they see there's a significant upgrade that's needed here, especially on the defensive side of the ball. This is not a good team. It's not going to be a good team without Dak Prescott and then without Andy Dalton for this week or however long he's out for sure. But it's not a good team right now. So you do start thinking about the future a little bit, and maybe it is something where another player or two is traded. I know they're going to listen. Whether they get any offers that they can't resist, we'll see. This one may sound crazy, and there's a good chance that it is, and I need to look at what the cap consequences would be. What if somebody called with an offer for Zeke? If I'm the Cowboys, I unload him right away. I say bye. He has not been good, not lived up to that contract. I move on from him. Absolutely. They they would love to get rid of that contract. I, I mean, it's an albatross on him right now with, with what he's doing compared to what they're paying him. It's, he's just not been good. In fact, he's probably been, compared to what he makes, probably the worst player on the roster so far this season. And it looks like the cap charge next year, if they moved on from him, would be $14.9 million. His cap number next year is $13.7 million. So it's not like it's going to solve their cap issues. It would solve some cash issues. But I, I don't know that anyone out there wants to take on that contract right now either. Because unless you are a team that otherwise has everything else and you're one running back away from contending, boy, he could be this year's Herschel Walker. If there was only a dumb franchise out there like the Vikings in 1989 <laughs> that was willing Lynn? to give up. Yeah, where's Mike Lynn when you need him? Where's a team that is contending and otherwise has every piece except a high-end running back and would do something like this? That's not going to happen. I think that they won't get any calls on Ezekiel Elliott, but at least it's something fun to think about. And, yeah, look, here's the thing. Whatever attachment fans may have to a player, it is a position-by-position, name-by-name, rip the last name off the jersey and make a decision about whether or not this guy fits what you're doing what are your alternatives? What can you get? And more importantly, what can you unload by way of cap space for next year to give yourself more room to sign Dak Prescott and otherwise do business? All right, Jerry Jones, appearing as he does twice per week. Although I wonder how much longer this is going to last. I wonder if he's going to do the 60 minutes walkout on 105.3 The Fan in Dallas. He's on there twice a week. He was on today with Sean and RJ, a show that I have been on from time to time in the past. And he got a little testy. Here's Jerry Jones when pressed about a leadership void with the Dallas Cowboys. Does your team have a leadership void? Where in the offensive line? Where you, just o- just uh, overall where, when seriously, these. But, but seriously, seriously, where, where, do you, where would you have a leadership void? Is it an experience void? Is it a talent void? Is it a leadership void? I'm not trying to be cute here. The answer is yeah. no. The answer is yeah. no. I, I'm asking. 
there's not a, well, just shut up and let me answer. No. Jerry, when you go into the locker room, what I'm asking is, do you see the intangibles? You're not me that. I gave you the, I gave you the answer. When I go into the locker room, there's no leadership void in my eyes. Okay. okay. Now that's your answer. Let's move on. Hey, let me tell you, if I was 78 years old, the last place I'd be going is into the locker room. That's a different issue altogether. But he, he's saying what he has to say. Because here's the thing. There's no one he can blame for this. He hired the coach. He built the team. It all lands with him. He wants to build a championship team his way, not Jimmy Johnson's way, not Bill Parcells' way, not anyone else's way. So it all lands on him. And I remember when they were struggling 10 years or so ago, Bob Costas asked him, would you fire yourself as GM? And his response was basically, well, I can't, but maybe I would if I could. Something along those lines. So this is where we are now with this Cowboys team that isn't good. And there's clearly a leadership void. There's just there's a talent void, a leadership void, a coaching void, and everything void. The only thing that they do have that we know of is Tabasco sauce. I was just going to say that, Mike. They do have Tabasco sauce. We know that. And if you missed it, Mike Nolan stuck the Tabasco sauce in his eye, off his finger uh, yesterday during his press conference. That was pretty funny. Probably not funny for him, but funny for everybody else nonetheless. But Jerry did apologize, Mike, at the end and said he's sorry. You know, if if I'm a Cowboy fan... I feel okay about Jerry getting upset. I I think I would be more upset as a Cowboys fan if he wasn't upset. I like him being upset. When he's upset, he usually makes some moves and tries to do something to make the team better. So I don't know what the Cowboys are going to do. They made a first move in trading Everson Griffin. I would probably think the next move would be firing Mike Nolan with Tabasco sauce in his eye and all. But get him out the door next and let Jim Tomasula or somebody else take over that defense for the rest of the year. It's a complete and total mess. But they obviously need many, many things to make this a, a better team than, than what it is. And in the offseason, signing Dak to that long-term deal is going to be number one priority for the Cowboys. I don't know if it's a number one priority for Dak Prescott after what he's seen this year. But it is a number one priority for the Cowboys. And then they can begin the rebuild. Yeah, look, I like that Jerry's upset, but I think he's upset about the wrong things. If I'm a Cowboys fan, I want him to be upset about the things I'm upset about, which is the team stinks, the coaching is bad, there is a leadership void, it doesn't feel right, somebody needs to do something, and just getting upset at someone who is acting as kind of the liaison for the fans and posing these questions, and Jerry gets upset in the context of having to answer the questions, I don't know that that makes me feel better. It's nice to know he's capable of being upset, but I want him to be upset about the things I'm upset about, Shireen. Well, and Mike, here's a problem, too, and I emailed the NFL just yesterday, as a matter of fact, because I was asked by a Cowboys writer, what's the rule on a GM talking to the, talking to the media? He does his radio show, but he hasn't been with the media since the opening press conference in in July. And I would love to get a chance to talk to Jerry Jones, as would every other media member in the Dallas-Fort Worth market. But it's not happening. And there is no rule this season that he has to talk to the media. But there are so many questions I would love to have asked that that 105.3 either can't ask, isn't allowed to ask, 
or they just don't have time to ask that week. And so we don't get those questions asked. There aren't the good follows and all that. They do the best job they can can on the radio show, but there are limitations on a radio show. If you get them in a press conference setting and then the walk off afterwards, we all know that Jerry just keeps talking and keeps saying stuff. So I would love for that opportunity. It does not look like it's going to happen this season, unfortunately. So we're just going to have to take what he says in the radio and interpret what he says, which who knows if we're right or not sometimes. We, we've seen that already this year. I'm surprised he won't do it because he loves talking about the team. He loves people talking about the team, even when it's bad. And we know that good, bad, or otherwise, he's always available to reporters after every game. So that part of it is kind of strange to me, but it's fitting in this strange upside-down season. All right, the Miami Dolphins, a team that has had its name come up today, a scoop skirmish in South Florida over whether and to what extent the Dolphins are receiving listening to, exploring, entertaining, it's an exercise in semantics, offers regarding cornerback Xavier Howard. It all started when Omar Kelly of the South Florida Sun-Sentinel reported that the Dolphins are exploring trade offers for Xavier Howard. Joe Shad of the Palm Beach Post confirmed that. Then the team issued a very pointed and critical statement of Kelly and the South Florida Sun-Sentinel saying that they've exercised poor journalism, that it's rumor, et cetera, we're not exploring any trade offers. And then the Miami Herald, which got the statement from the Dolphins, and this was Barry Jackson saying that he and his colleague Adam Beasley had heard that other teams were calling the Dolphins and decided not to do anything with it pending the Dolphins issuing their statement. Now, there are some layers and levels here. Bottom line is this. No team wants to create the perception, Shireen, that it is a seller, a motivated seller of any player. You don't want to undermine the relationship with the player in the event he's not traded. And you also don't want to put yourself in a position where you do a bad deal because other teams say, we're just going to offer you whatever we offer because we know you're motivated to get this guy off your books. So the Dolphins have to clarify and they have to make sure everyone understands we're not doing this now. In doing so, what have they done? They've let the world know that if you are interested, there's a reason to call. And they're not going to hang up the phone. They haven't been hanging up the phone. That's what the Miami Herald made clear in the aftermath of the statement. But, you know, there's some nuance and some subtlety here. But the bottom line is they have been getting calls. They haven't been slamming the phone down. And that doesn't mean they're shopping him. But like any other team with a multitude of players... You're going to take the call and you're going to hear what they have to say, period. So it's true. And exploring may be the wrong word, but they're getting calls on Xavier Howard. So be it. So I, I, I think the whole thing is kind of funny because uh, it's, it's typical. It happens. And I'm surprised the Dolphins got so bent out of shape over it. Both things can be true, right, Mike? I mean, one, you're not shopping the player, but two, you're not slamming the phone down either, and you are listening to offers. I mean, you wrote the other day about how few players really are off limits on trades. There just aren't that many. Every player is, almost every player in the NFL is available for trade. All of them have a price, whatever that price is. So, of course, they're going to listen to offers, and if they get something they can't turn down, like Minka Fitzpatrick, 
they're going to pull the trigger and make the trade. This is a guy that's been really good uh, in the past four games. He has four interceptions in the past four games. He's played really, really well. Now, I don't know if you want to trade him because he has played so well, but he also has an injury history. And you do have Byron Jones, who you've given an awful lot of money to. So if the right offer comes along, absolutely they're going to deal him. And if they don't get the right offer, hey, then they can tell Xavier Howard, we never shopped you. We believe in you. You've been great for us. And they have their two corners that that they need for moving along to 2021-2022. So this works out for the Dolphins, I think, either way. Because, again, if they get an offer they can't refuse, they've got even more picks than what they have now, which the Texans pick is looking more and more like a top five pick as we move along. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it reminded me of a situation that unfolded late in the 2017 preseason when Ian Rappaport of NFL Media reported the Broncos were getting phone calls about teams wanting to trade for T.J. Ward. Instantly, a general manager with another team called me and said, that is a load of BS, and he didn't say BS. They are making the calls. They are trying to shop this guy, and lo and behold, a couple of days later, they cut T.J. Ward when they were unable to find a trade partner. So it's all in the posture. It's a negotiating ploy. If you are perceived as wanting to make a deal, and this applies to anything, you're trying to sell a bicycle, a car, your house, whatever, you have more power in the negotiations if you're not trying to sell it, if you're not perceived as trying to sell. And the flip side is if there's a motivated buyer out there, somebody who really wants this guy, and is trying to pry the player away from a team that wants to keep him. That's your best trade leverage when you're negotiating. Oh, we'll give you a first-round pick. No, we want the guy. Well, we'll give you more. No, we want the guy. And and that's how you do the best deal. That's what this is all about. So I'm surprised that the Herald sat on the story, and this is where it gets a little inside baseball, But and, and also where I say things that piss off other reporters, but I don't care because our <laughs> obligation is to the audience. The Herald shouldn't have sat on that. If they know that people are calling the Dolphins, the team they cover, about Xavier Howard, they should report it. They should report it clearly and accurately, and I'm not sure the other outlets did. But if they're getting calls, that's news. And you report it. And I think they called the Dolphins, and the Dolphins talked, well, I, I I don't need a high level degree in logic to say they called the Dolphins, and the Dolphins talked them out of it. Now, it goes next level when you wonder what kind of express or implicit deals may have done to get them to back off the story. It happens all the time. I'm not saying it happened here. I'm saying it happens all the time. I don't like it. I don't do it, but it happens all the time, Shireen. So that's where this thing becomes kind of an interesting case study in how the sausage gets made. The bottom line is teams are calling. Whether they trade them or not, we'll find out. But teams are calling, and now everyone knows there's a reason to maybe call the Dolphins and see if Xavier Howard's available. Yeah, and, you know, people have seen now that his knee's in good shape. It's been 10 months that she had that knee surgically repaired. He's playing really, really well. In fact, he has 16 interceptions in the last 34 games he's played since 2017. He's playing at a high level. So teams are going to be interested. They are going to make the calls. They are going to see what it would take to trade him if they are in need of a cornerback. You look at a team like Seattle. I imagine Seattle in need of defensive help, ranking 32nd overall, They need a ton of help, and I imagine they're making a lot of phone calls around the league to defensive players uh, that might be available to see what it would cost to trade for those guys. I mean, the Dolphins are going to be contenders we know going forward in the future. They're not a Super Bowl contender this year, 
but they look really good with, with what they have. And we're going to see two of this week, but all that, all those draft picks that they have from Houston and everything else, they're building something for the future. And they'll take those draft picks. If they're good enough, they'll move on from Xavier Howard. And they'll probably move on from other players too, Devontae Park, whoever it might be. I think they'll probably be willing to move on for those players. If the right deal comes along. You mentioned the fact that the Dolphins hold the Texans' first overall pick. That is part of the residue of the Laramie Tunsil-Kenny Stills trade from Labor Day weekend 2019. And there's a chance that the Texans will deliver to the Dolphins the first overall pick. (laughs) And you have to find out what Tua has because maybe you have Trevor next year. Maybe you're the Cardinals where you use the fifth pick one year on a quarterback and the next year you use the first pick. And Maybe that would be acceptable to Trevor Lawrence. He'll know how the draft order shakes out before he has to make a decision about entering the draft. Lawrence today, he here's his quote. Let's take a look at what he said, and then let's analyze what it may mean. I'm intrigued by this. Oh, we don't have the quote. The bottom line is this, and I'm going to paraphrase, to the best of my limited recollection. He's not sure what he's going to do. And that, to me is an indication that he understands that he's going to end up with a really bad team if he comes out this year. Now, here's the reality. You're always going to end up with a really bad team, barring a trade, barring an acquisition of a pick by a better team. So whenever you come out, that's what you're looking at. I think his better move, Shireen, is to just make an Eli Manning, John Elway power play. And I'm surprised guys don't do that more often. I don't know who advises them on this, but I think there's a way to make the argument without being perceived as a jerk. And and let me tell you this, any player out there now or in the future, if you ever do this, I will support you 100%. The argument is the draft isn't fair. I got to pick my college I should get to pick my next destination. And we have seen time and again quarterbacks who go to a bad team with a bad coach and a bad owner and a bad everything, and they're ruined. And they never get a second chance. I don't want to be that guy. I want to pick where I go. So I don't want to go to the team that holds the first overall pick. And I'm making sure that everyone knows that right now. And you know what? If that team picks me, I won't sign a contract. I'll sit out the whole year and I'll re-enter the draft next year. If he has misgivings and reservations about what to do, that's what he should do. Because there's no reason playing football again next year. There's no reason to play for free next year. If you want to avoid the Jets or whoever else has the first overall pick and you don't want to go to a bad dysfunctional team, your leverage is to say, don't draft me. Because if you do, I will never sign with you. That's what he should do. Two ways to do it, Mike, and the Mannings did it both ways. Peyton Manning was coming out in 1997. Jets had the first pick, and and Peyton said, "Uh -uh, I'm going back to school and ended up being picked by the Colts the the next year. And then you go to Eli Manning, and obviously they had the power play. The Chargers picked him number one overall anyway. He says, I'm not playing with you. We all remember the face he made on stage holding up that Chargers jersey. Uh, and ended up being traded to the Giants where where he wanted to go. So absolutely, he has leverage, Trevor Lawrence does, and, and he needs to use that in whatever way he wants to use it. If he doesn't want to go to Jets, he needs to make that clear that he doesn't want to go to the Jets. If they end up with the number one 
pick and figure out who he would like to go to and, and try to facilitate a trade to where he wants to go, just like Eli did. But I think these players, and I think they figured that out. I mean, we've seen this right through the social injustice things that have happened. They hold way more power than they think they do, and I think they've started to figure that out. You know, the rest of the story on Eli Manning I've heard over the years is that, first of all, it, it was Archie who took the public criticism. You, it's nice to have a former football player as a father who can be the one to say, I don't think my son should play for the Chargers. But the reality is he visited the Chargers and he got mixed signals as to whether or not the team really wanted him. Marty Schottenheimer was the coach. A.J. Smith was the GM. They hated each other. Smith wanted Eli, and Marty didn't. That was the impression Eli got. So he doesn't want to go to a place where it, it, he's not sure whether or not they want him. That was part of it, and it worked out. And, and for Trevor Lawrence, it's very simple. If you're thinking about not getting paid to play football in 2021, then, then make it known, publicly or privately, you're not going to go to this team, this team, this team, this team, this team. And if any of those teams draft you, you're not signing a contract with that team unless that team is going to be trading him to a team that he will play for. And if, it do, and, and, if, and if they don't like it, he'll sit out the whole year and he'll enter the draft again in 2021, which is what I'm waiting for someone to do. We said ever since his freshman year, right, Mike, that he would be the number one overall pick. Who would you have taken last year if you're the Bengals? Would you have taken Joe Burrow or would you have taken Trevor Lawrence? It would have been an interesting decision. Yeah, it would have been. And I probably would have taken Trevor Lawrence just because Joe Burrow had that one great year. Now, so far, Burrow has played extremely well. But he had that one great year at LSU. And before that, he he wasn't even on the radar screen for a first-round pick. So uh, I probably Lawrence, though, because he's got, he's got the body of work. He's, got, he's done it more... more uh, on a on a longer basis. I'm, I don't know why I'm struggling with such simple words. Uh, and it's only Tuesday. He's done it longer than Joe Burrow. So that's what I'm trying to say. How about a break? Maybe I need a break right now. Maybe I need a longer break than just a couple of minutes. We'll be back with a Steelers-Titans rewatch from Week 7 when PFTPM continues right after Yeah, I mean, really proud of the way that uh, this team um, came down here, went on the road against a, a really, really good football team and, and found a way to win. It wasn't always pretty. Uh, there were times that it was, but, you know, I three turn, three interceptions is, is, is unacceptable on my part. So I need to clean it up and be better. But defense came through in the end, um, you know, missed field goal at the end of the game and just kind of everything played, played itself out. And, you know, at the end of the day, we got to win against a really good football team at their place. It was a gut punch to see that, that kick go wide right. You know, I had a ton of confidence going out there that Steve was going to nail that kick. Uh, unfortunately, obviously, it was a little bit, a little bit wide, but, um, you know, it doesn't come down to, to Steven. It's, it's a lot that I can do better and we can do better as an offense throughout the game so that we're not in that situation at the end. One of the best games of the weekend was Steelers at Titans. The Steelers had the 27-7 lead. They tried their best to blow it. It's the subject of our Week 7 rewatch, Shireen. And let's begin with our categories, as we always do. Best player on the field after further review. Who do you have? 
Well, Mike, I didn't watch this game live or I didn't see much of it. It was on my fourth TV and I had two other games that I was responsible for. So I really kept wondering, how did the Titans come back? I knew they were down 27-7. So I'm watching the replay last night and I kept going, how did this team come back? How did this team come back? And it just seemed like the game was getting shorter and shorter and shorter to the end. And and finally, you know what propelled them was that A.J. Brown 73-yard touchdown pass. And I just thought that really got that team going. And they look like a different team when they have A.J. Brown on the on, on the field. And he has been a difference maker this year when he has played. Of course, he had some injuries earlier. But he had six catches for 153 yards and a touchdown. And I just thought he was fantastic uh, for the Titans. I know you could say Ryan Tannehill brought him back and he had a terrific game. But I just thought A.J. Brown really made the difference in the Titans come back in this one and frankly they should have taken this to overtime they had all the momentum going for them I think they would have won this game if not for the missed kick and even though they lost I think it is very encouraging that they wiped out that 20 point deficit in the second half it should give them plenty of confidence as they face deficits in the future against really good teams possibly in the postseason I think that it was a good thing although it would have been a better thing I'm not going to go with that oh it was good that we lost no it would have been better to win but there's still a silver lining in that cloud because it proved to the Titans they can come back. I'm going with Deontay Johnson. He's a guy who suffered the back injury against the Eagles, opening the door for Chase Claypool to have four touchdowns. And then last week against the Browns, Claypool had another solid day. Well, Claypool didn't do much of anything because Deontay Johnson's back. And he's back in the lineup, and he justified his position. And I guess he realizes I need to play as well as I can to keep Claypool on the bench as much as possible and Deontay Johnson had the two touchdowns and he was great with there was a third down play early on he catches a little slant and he breaks it outside and he makes the first down and and then he had a play like that later where it's a slant and as soon as he gets it he just he pivots outside and and he leaves everyone in the dust and and he was one of the reasons why the Steelers were able to convert third downs and score points and helped build that lead early that they took into the locker room at 24-7 and made it 27-7. So Deontay Johnson was awesome. I know people are caught up in in Chase Claypool and want him on the field as much as possible. This is an embarrassment of riches for the Steelers, though. They've got a lot of great receivers, and Johnson is clearly one of them, as is Juju Smith-Schuster, as is Claypool, Shereen. Yeah, and he picked up that key first down, Mike, with 335 left, and he hurt his ankle on that play. And I was wondering if he had stayed in the game, if the Steelers don't score there and really put that game away, and they didn't. Uh, But he was such a big, big part of that game, 15 targets. And this is a guy who was really good in the first two games and then had the back injury and the concussion, and he's been kind of in and out of the lineup since then until this game when he looked like he was 100%. And uh, yes, this, the Steelers have su- done such a great job in drafting receivers outside the first round who've come in and contributed and been big contributors. Whatever they're doing at that position, they're doing it right, and other, other teams need to copy what they're doing. All right, next uh, topic, player who was better than we originally thought. Well, you know, Mike, we always talk about the Steelers' defense and how good it is, and we talk about Minka Fitzpatrick, and we we talk about T.J. Watt and Bud Dupree and all those big names. They have a ton of big names on the defense, but Vince Williams is a guy we don't talk a lot about, and I thought his contributions this week with what they did against Derrick Henry were just huge. I mean, this is a guy coming off a 200-yard game against the Texans, and he had scored those touchdowns that led him to, to that victory, and 
the Steelers were without Devin Bush, and they're without him for the year, and, and Vince Williams just stepped up. He had 10 tackles. He had a sack. He had two tackles for loss. He was just fantastic, and Henry was held to 75 yards on 20 carries, and he got those two passes, and, and they were for, for minus three yards, and Vince Williams was a big, big part of that, and if he keeps playing like that, this defense is going to be even better moving forward because, again, they have all those all-pro and Pro Bowl players, but Vince Williams isn't one you immediately think about. Well, yeah, and, and I agree with you. And T.J. Watt is one that I do think about. And when I originally looked at, at the stat sheet, nothing really jumped out. Yeah, he had a sack, tackles for loss. But when you watch the game, getting to Derrick Henry behind the line of scrimmage multiple times is very impressive. The sack that he had was almost a strip sack. That was very impressive. And, and, and what T.J. Watt told me after the game was they were taking it as a point of pride to get to Derrick Henry and keep him from getting into the secondary because they know what he can do. One thing about Vince Williams, he had that jarring hit of Ryan Tannehill. I mean, blew him up. And I respect Tannehill next play through a touchdown pass that cut the Steelers' lead from 14-0 to 14-7. But Vince Williams blew him up. And uh, they, they've got some great, great defensive players. As I was watching the game and and thinking about T.J. Watt and Derek Watt and thinking about how salty J.J. Watt was after the latest <laughs> Texans loss, it did cross my mind the possibility of the Steelers trading for J.J. Watt. They just don't need him. It would be great to have J.J. and T.J. on the field together, and I bet at some level they both would love that. The Steelers just don't need him. They've got so many great guys. You just, you just, what, what do you do with JJ Watt with all these other great players they have, Shereen? Yeah, and you know TJ Watt's a guy that I mean we think more of JJ Watt than we do of TJ, and that's because he has the three defensive player of the year awards. But I think TJ Watt's on pace to do that. I think when we start talking about those guys, we need to include his name in there. He made his first All Pro last season. He's a terrific player, and uh, they don't need JJ Watt because they do have all those other guys to go with TJ Watt. But I just think TJ Watt's one of the best defensive players in the league that we probably don't give quite enough credit to when we start talking about the best pass rushers. All right. Who had a game they'd like to forget? Well, I'm going to go with Chase Claypool. We talked about him and it was fortunate for the Steelers that Deontay Johnson did come through and have such a big game, but Chase Claypool had one target, one catch minus one yard and one fumble. That is not a good stat line for anybody. And he was really a non-factor in this game. It was his worst game so far, of a rookie year, he's had a terrific rookie season. There's no question about that. But he did not play well in this game, and he ends up now with 18 catches, 333 yards, and four touchdowns this season. He's been really good. He was not good in this game. Yeah, look, I, I agree with you. And he had that one play where he got the ball on a reverse and, and fumbled it and could have had a disaster for the Steelers. He did make a nice recovery. But, you know, he's not a selfish player. He really isn't. I, I when I spoke to him after that breakout game against the Eagles, he said, hey, if they start double covering me, if they put a safety over the top, that's what I want because it's going to make everything easier for the rest of the players. And I have a feeling when he's on the field now, they are paying special attention to Chase Claypool. And it may be one of the reasons why I didn't have as much production. All right. Uh, for me, it's it's easy. And I'm not going to spend much time on it. Steven Guskowski <laughs> missing the 45-yarder that would have forced overtime. We've seen this narrative. And when you are going to live on the edge like the Titans do – You've got to make your kicks. You need a kicker you can trust. And Mike Vrabel continues to trust Guskowski. And I guess statistically, if every week there's going to be a kick that either wins the game, loses the game, or forces overtime, you're going to miss some. 
but that's what the Titans' life has been most weeks. And uh, Guskowski has to be feeling badly about what transpired. All right, let's get to a play to take a closer look at. Shereen, what did you pick? Well, I picked the one with 240 left. The Steelers led by three at that point, and they had the third and 12 at the Tennessee 19. Tennessee had used two of their three timeouts, and Ben went for it all in the end zone and throws the interception that bounces off Juju's hands. All you see in the picture are Titans. There's four Titans around them, and Amani Hooker ends up with the interception. But I wanted the Steelers there. I know I realize a touchdown puts you two scores ahead, but if the Titans never get the ball back, they're, you're going to win the game, right? So I would have liked to have seen them pick up the first down, burn the clock, burn off the time, and then even if you get the field goal, the Titans don't have very much time, and they have to score a touchdown to beat you. And it almost backfired on the Steelers, the interception that Big Ben threw. And he didn't have a good game. I'm surprised we haven't talked more about him because the three interceptions almost sunk, sunk the Steelers, and he does have to play better. But I just thought that was a huge play in the game that let the Titans open the door for the Titans to come back and ultimately miss the field goal. And I think Big Ben was stunned when they did miss that field goal. Well, one interception was on a batted ball, but the other two were in the end zone. The one at the end of the first half was ridiculous. I don't know what he was thinking, what he was doing. They were in range for a fairly long field goal. They could have gone in at the half up 27-7. Uh, that that was unfortunate. And, you know, I watched that play several times, the one that you've selected at the end. There was an opening there. And I guess anytime you've got a linebacker on a receiver, you take your shot. And the ball was just off. And, and look, we're talking about the best passers in the world, a guy who's been doing it for years, a guy who can place the ball wherever he wants to place it. He just put it too far to his left, and it was in position where Juju had to reach around the linebacker, the ball got popped up in the air, and that was that. You place that thing just a little bit more to the right, and it's one hell of a throw, and assuming he holds on, it's one hell of a catch, and it's game over. But it just shows you how how narrow that margin can be, and we marvel at when a quarterback throws a ball that threads the needle. Sometimes they don't thread the needle. And something like that happens, and it opens the door for the Titans to force overtime. My play was the Brett Kern punt that that led to the first yeah. interception, and it wasn't a punt because he didn't punt it. He had a low snap. He freaked out. He started to run toward the line. I don't know what they coach these guys to do in that moment, and I don't know whether any coaching ever takes because he starts to run toward the line. A guy's coming at him, and he throws the ball. Well, Anyone with half a brain knows that if you throw the ball in that setting, everyone's going to be illegally downfield. Everyone's going to be. And if you really wanted to, and I under, and look, I don't want to be punters aren't athletes. I'd like to su- assume that these guys are sufficiently athletic that he could have done like a rugby punt just to get the ball past the line of scrimmage down the field and farther away than where it was when you throw an incomplete pass or you know you have a penalty that nullifies it anyway. So I was stunned by that. And it just, you don't expect to see that. Number one, you don't expect to see a low snap. You take that for granted. And you don't expect the punter to freak out, Shereen, the way that he did. But he just freaked out. And how bad did the Titans special teams hurt them? And it, it's hurt them the last couple of years. And they better get that fixed. And they better get it fixed in a hurry. But the, the, the dichotomy here of, I had just finished watching the Rams game. And you see Johnny Hecker does do what he did, which is, all five punts at the 10-yard line or inside the 10-yard line. Then I go watch this game, 
Brent Kern was awful. And, you know, he gave up the long uh, return to Ray Ray McLeod that created a short field for the Steelers that they converted there. They started at the Tennessee 17. Then he tried to run on that one, and they were fortunate that Ben threw that interception because they had another short field there. But uh, it, they've got to get those special teams fixed before they get to the playoffs. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, Michael David Smith will join us, and we will give out our Week 7 awards. We'll be back with more PFTPM right after this. PFTPM continues on this Tuesday, and here's what we do every Tuesday afternoon. Michael David Smith joins Shereen Williams and I, and we talk about our awards. Four categories. We each get a pick. And MDS, let's get right to it. Offensive Player of the Week for Week 7. Who you got? I got Kenny Galladay of the Lions, who missed the first two games of this season with a hamstring injury. There was talk that he was unhappy about his contract. He hasn't gotten an extension. But since he returned in week three, his production has increased each week. This week he had his best game yet, 114 yards, including a big catch that set up the Lions game-winning touchdown as time expired. He is making a big statement that he deserves a big contract somewhere next year, whether that's in Detroit or elsewhere, remains to be seen. MDS, I'm going to go with Baker Mayfield. And his first pass of the day was disastrous. It was an interception. Uh, Odell Beckham had the knee injury that knocked him out for the year while trying to make the tackle. And it set up the first touchdown for the Bengals, a 24-yard scoring drive. Disastrous. He was 0 for 5 in the first quarter, and he rebounded to go 22 at 23 for 297 yards and five touchdowns. We wanted to see a Baker Mayfield uh, rebound, and I think we saw it. Uh, the last pass, obviously, was a Do- Do- Donovan Peoples-Jones touchdown with 11 seconds to go that won the game. I just thought he played a terrific game after that first quarter. Yeah, I agree, and that's the way that Baker Mayfield's going to have to play more often, especially without Odell Beckham Jr. there for the rest of the year. I have a niece who is an extremely rabid Browns fan who has suffered through the horrible years, 4-44 and 44 from 2015 through 2017. She was texting me early in the game, demanding that Baker Mayfield be benched. And I I responded by saying, is there something that you think I can do to cause that to happen? But she just vented, and then she was very happy by the end of the day. So she's back on the Baker Mayfield bandwagon, as are many Browns fans. Player of the week for me. And, and listen, this is player of the year. This is I, I want to petition the league to put Kyler Murray and the Cardinals in primetime every week. He is so fun to watch, and and yeah, I know that it, it, it's 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 not perfection, but it's close enough. And the way that he moves, and the way that he avoids taking hits, he had 48 passes the other night, and didn't get hit once. I, I think when he did get hit pretty squarely at one point, that freaked out Cliff Kingsbury and got him to go for the field goal on second down from the uh, what was a 41-yard try that ultimately was missed. But look at that, 360 passing yards, four total touchdowns, one interception, 67 rushing yards, just incredible and and just fun to watch. Whatever the, the status of the game, whether they're losing, whether they're blowing someone out, whether it's a close, it's just fun to watch Kyler Murray. And uh, I, I just hope we see more Arizona Cardinals as the season continues to unfold. Flip it over to the defensive side, MDS, who do you got? I got Leonard Floyd, the former Bears first-round draft pick who had maybe his best game yet against his old team on Monday night. He had two sacks, really relentless in his pressure on Nick Foles. 
And Sean McVay gave both Floyd and defensive coordinator Brandon Staley game balls. Staley had previously been Floyd's position coach with the Bears. And I really like the way Floyd plays in the Rams' defense. I think he is starting to look like the player the Bears thought he was when they drafted him in the first round in 2016. I thought he had an excellent game, really came on. And, you know, if they can bring pressure with players other than Aaron Donald, it becomes that much harder to just double Aaron Donald every play. I think this Rams defense is going to make some noise the rest of the season. Yeah, in MDS, I think the Bucks defense obviously is doing the same thing. And now that Tom Brady's on the other side of the ball, they're really getting their notice. And Devin White really stood out for me. 11 tackles, three sacks, a tackle for loss, and a forced fumble. That was his fourth game with 10-plus tackles this year and has really played great. He played pretty good last year as a rookie and just turning it on this year. And I think people are starting to notice that Bucks defense and starting to notice that they have a lot of great players on it, and Devin White is one of those great players. 49ers are turning it around after they bottomed out following a 43-17 home loss to the Miami Dolphins. They have beaten the Rams in prime time and then went on the road and dismantled the Patriots in a big spot. Fred Warner, my choice for Defensive Player of the Week. You know, without Nick Bosa, without Solomon Thomas, and they haven't thrown in the towel. They just keep doing what they need to do. Warner had the diving interception. He had seven tackles in all. And uh, uh, the, the 49ers in a good spot now. Two of, of seven death march games, and they've won both of them, and they're building some momentum, and that division keeps getting more and more interesting, and there is a real chance that all four teams are going to end up in the playoffs now that there's an extra spot. All right. Rookie of the Week, MDS, who do you have? I have Brandon Ayuk, who had his first career 100-yard receiving game uh, against that Patriots secondary. And really, look, I I thought, like, the 49ers were just unstoppable when they were going to Brandon Ayuk. I mean, he caught pretty much everything thrown to him. Uh, They stopped passing really in the the middle of the third quarter, or else Ayuk would have had even bigger numbers. Uh, This was an outstanding performance. And this 49ers team, I really thought with all the injuries they had so early in the season, it it was just going to be too much for them to come back from and be contenders to return to the Super Bowl. But I was wrong. They really have put together a a, a couple of impressive performances. And I think in Ayuk, they have a really special rookie. And speaking of impressive performances, MDS, Antonio Gibson had 33 carries in college at Memphis, 33 total in his career. He had 20 carries on Sunday, went for 128 yards and a touchdown. Washington went over 200 yards. I realize you could pick any rusher against the Cowboys any week, but he was outstanding this week against the Cowboys. I'm going to go with Joe Burrow, and I feel like he's been selected multiple times already this year, and for good reason. I think MDS, you had the post pointing out he's on pace to set the rookie passing yardage record and the rookie record for 300-yard games. He went over 400. He did everything in his power to win that game on Sunday for the Bengals, and he really does deserve better than what the Bengals have around him. All that dysfunction, all these unhappy guys, Carlos Dunlap, A.J. Green, John Ross. It seems like every day there's another guy who's unhappy with his role, Geno Atkins. Let's get this team under control. Let's get some help around Joe Burrow, and they're going to have something special when they do. All right, Coach of the Week time, MDS, who do you have? I have Ron Rivera. It was obviously a great week for Ron Rivera personally. He finished his cancer treatments, but also – 
it, you know, you, you see him there ringing the bell. That That is a great, great moment for Ron Rivera personally. I think that's awesome to see. But, you know, just what a dominant performance his team put on against the Cowboys. Kind of amazing to say this. They are absolutely in the hunt for the NFC East. Now, that may say more about the NFC East than it says about the Washington football team. But I like the direction Ron Rivera has this team going in in his first year. Obviously, they're not a great team yet, but I think they're playing better football than most people would have thought. If you look at the roster he inherited, I think Ron Rivera is doing a good job. My choice is Mike Tomlin, and I just think we take this guy for granted, but he's one of the best coaches in the NFL. He continues to prove that. They're the last team standing undefeated. I'm giving it to Mike Tomlin this week. I've got to give it to Matt LaFleur, the Green Bay Packers coach. When they lose, which doesn't happen often, they lose in spectacular fashion. But what they do is they pick themselves up and they keep going. They don't let one loss become a second loss. They went to Houston. They took care of business. They fed Devontae Adams. And for whatever reason, the Texans were not double teaming Devontae Adams. So they kept feeding Devontae Adams. Without Aaron Jones, I don't know what the Texans were thinking, but LaFleur was thinking, let's keep doing it until they take it away. They never did, and it was a route for the Green Bay Packers, and they are back on the right track until their next spectacular loss, which doesn't happen very often, but you never know when it's lurking, especially when the Packers go on the road. All right, quick break. Thank you, MDS. When we return, Shereen and I will talk about the official signing of Antonio Brown by the Buccaneers. More PFTPM right after this. All right, here's your daily lineup on NBC Sports on Peacock. Begins with PFT Live, continues with Dan Patrick Show, Rich Eisen, brother from another, and us, PFTPM, every weekday, only on Peacock. Only on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, officially announced by the team. Antonio Brown, one-year contract. He can report tomorrow. He can play in week nine. Uh, How big of a difference do you think he's going to make? Well, it's a great question, Mike, and it's uh, to me it's still a question of whether he gets on the field, right? Because uh, he played no games with the Raiders and he played one game with the Patriots, and if that trend holds, he's going to play two games for the Bucs. But, you know, part of his undoing was the jealousy of Juju, if you remember when Juju was voted team MVP and A.B. had a had a fit about that. So how is he going to fit in with all these great receivers that the Bucs has? I think it's a great question. The last time we saw him playing at a high level, it was against the Saints. He had a huge day. Juju Smith-Schuster had a fumble that cost them the game and blew their playoff chance. Two days later, Juju's the team MVP. That's when Antonio Brown blew a gasket and was gone from the Steelers, and that started this cascade that's lasted for two years. Look, I don't like his contract. We posted something earlier today with the details. Albert Breer of SI.com had them. 45 catches, 650 yards, six touchdowns, 35% playing time. If, if he's not on the field and if he's not getting the football, he's not going to be happy because he's not going to be making money. I wish they wouldn't have done it that way. But Tom Brady's there to keep him in line. And if he falls out of line, he's going to get kicked off the roster. Chris Godwin, finger injury. His status is in doubt for a while. That gives Antonio Brown a potential opening. So we'll see what he can do. Sunday Night Football, Week 9 on NBC. Chris Sims on Button. You may recognize him. He's next here on PFT or on Peacock. We'll see you tomorrow.
The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.